Chapter 9 of Women, Children, Love, and Marriage. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Women, Children, Love, and Marriage by Catherine Giscoyne Hartley. Section 4 of Children The Superfluous Father. In many homes, where there are children, the father seems a stranger, almost an intruder. The central figure in the family is the mother. All the details of her life are familiar to the children. She is seen shopping, cooking, looking after the home. The father is a little mysterious. He goes adventuring in the unknown world. He is picturesque and wonderful an exciting figure that arouses nursery admiration. But he is unnecessary. At first, the mother occupies all the children's attention. She supplies food, comfort, shelter, teaching, and brings happiness to the nursery. She is the first love object, and of supreme importance, the starting point of all those interests of the children which lie outside of themselves. But the other parent, the superfluous father, comes both as interrupter and friend into this mother-child circle. He plays with the children, opens up new delightful ways of interest, brings the movement that children love, but also he is a disturber. He absorbs the mother, draws her attention and care from the children. He upsets the order and balance of the nursery. He almost dethrones the baby. Thus, at a very early age, jealousy of the father begins to stir and unsettle the nursery peace. Usually, we either treat this childish jealousy as a joke, or refuse to admit its presence, but it is deadly earnest to the child itself. If the mother is capricious, varying in her attentions to her husband and to her children, or if she is over-tender and too demonstratively affectionate, this jealousy may, and indeed must, work a great and permanent evil. You see, it imposes a conflict in the exquisitely responsive child between the emotions of hate and anger and envy born of jealousy and the emotions of love and admiration and obedience dependent on a sense of the benefits conferred by the father. It is the duty of the mother so to balance her favors and her love that the rights of the husband and the children are both maintained and neither side is tempted to be a monopolist. For it is not only the children who are jealous of the father. Often the father is jealous of the children, and often he has cause. Some women, when once the child is born, regard their husbands solely as the person for providing money necessary for the maintenance of the home. In any other capacity, she has ceased to desire him. Frankly, he is in the way. The mother type often ceases, after motherhood, to be the loving mate, the wife. There is so little time for love-making in a nursery home. The man becomes a superfluidity. His demands tend to be delegated to holidays that are planned, but do not often occur. Nature herself seems to condemn the man in his capacity as father. So delicate is the bond which attaches him to the child, as compared with the unbreakable bindings which hold the child to the mother. So readily can he be pushed outside the circle of the family, where, as a member apart, he will inevitably seek his own interests and pleasures. Now, whether this complete severance happens or not, some conflict between the father and his children, especially between father and sons, is almost bound to occur. This is a war which is normal and, indeed, inevitable, 
far more so than any class war, any opposition and struggle between the nations. Have we not read of the solitary polygamous father of the past, the old man of the tribe, who drove his sons out of the horde as they grew up, because in his greed he wanted all the women to be his wives? Much time has passed since then, but these emotions are very old and very strong. Pity, and the gentler feelings of civilization, enable the father to accept the son as a member of the family, and as a companion instead of a rival, but echoes remain of the old instincts of jealous rivalry. No science is so difficult or so important as psychology. It is because parents do not understand their own minds, or the minds of their children, that they make such mistakes. They do not see that some jealousy and opposition in family relationships are inevitable, and, in fact, useful. Else the child would never grow up, would always be overwhelmed by its parents. So do not let us be too alarmed if sons oppose fathers, or if fathers are wanting in sympathy with their sons. Yet it must be remembered, finally, on the other side, that the authority of the father has to be maintained. Superfluous in the family, from one point of thought, his influence is nevertheless of the most urgent importance. Without it, a too great dependence on self is fostered at too early an age, which sets up an intolerant and unreasoning hatred of all authority, and an inability to suffer any kind of restraint. The father thus needs to preserve his rights and duties within the home. If women have had to fight for the vote, and the open door to the profession, the father may have to fight for the love of his children, and the key to the nursery. He must refuse to be regarded as superfluous. End of section 9 Recording by Todd